This is Corolla Digital. From Level 5 City in Glendale, it's This Week with Larry Miller. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who really loves college food. Hi, folks, and welcome back to This Week with Larry Miller. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And as always, that music makes me happy and makes me smile, and they get better every week. Of course, that's the Saul Mayer's Orchestra and the Muriel Greenleaf Dancers featuring boy tenor James Mitchell Jr. asking the musical question, Will you still love me tomorrow? Now, I I got a kick out of that, and I think Colonel Jeff did too, because the thing is, that's a a famous lyric from an old song. It's not a Beatles song. I can't remember what it was, but Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And when when you first hear it in the song, and then when you hear it, for the second, for the tenth, for the twentieth times over the years, you hear it in a song, you know, but all I need to know is, will you still love me tomorrow? And, it, boy, it seems deep. It seems brilliant. It seems pithy. It seems wise. It seems like something that reflects in a good way on life. And when I read it today, though, will you still love me tomorrow, my new thought was, that must be the most boring question in the world that anyone would ever ask that for real. If you think about it suddenly, it seems like the kind of thing a man would ask a woman, will you still love me tomorrow? I guess it could go either way, a woman ask a man. But the thing is, what a thing to ask someone. What does that come after? Does that come after something intimate? Does that come after a dinner out together? Does that come after you give her a nice gift? It it just doesn't seem there's any time that can come. Oh, by the way, I'm just curious about something. Will you still love me tomorrow? It seems the other person has to say, I've got to be honest with you. I don't think I love you now. Just for asking that question, it's, it, it kind of pushes me back. In any case, though, thank you, Saul. Thank you, Muriel. And thank you, boy tenor James. As always, it means, it means a lot to us here. And, and, and Amazon. That's right. And at Amazon. Amazon is our sponsor, and Amazon sponsors every show here at Ace Broadcasting. And we're happy about that because, as you know, as you ought to know, as you better know, if you want anything in the world, there's nothing you can think of that you can't get at Amazon. If you go onto the Internet and punch in Amazon, you can get to anything in the world, right? And you should buy anything in the world, right? And you should get it all from Amazon, right? Wrong! Wrong! You don't. You don't do it that way. What you do is you go to our website, which is LarryMillerPodcast.com. That's right. Uh, that was th- I thought I was saving, saying shaving a haircut two bits there. LarryMillerPodcast.com. LarryMillerPodcast.com. And there's a little banner, a little flag, a little flyer there, right? And it says Amazon on it. That banner says Amazon on it. You click that banner on our website, and you still then get to pick and choose and buy anything in the world you want on Amazon. They have every single thing in the world you could ever think of, except, of course, with the exception of an actual Amazon. 
You can't get one of those. You can't get a tall, muscular, gorgeous, sexy woman from, I guess, the Amazon from deep in the heart of Brazil. You can't get one of those on at Amazon. And if you do, as we've said before, as I love saying to you, if you can get an actual Amazon, please, please call us first because the colonel, the doctor, and I will be down there, well, in two shakes of a lamb's tail, and we'll make sure that it's an actual Amazon. How? Never mind. That's not your business. We know these things. This is a show business question. So what you do is you order anything in the world there on Amazon, and we get part of it. Amazon sends us something here from what you order. So they're happy. They're a company. They're doing great. You're happy. You got everything in the world you ever wanted, and you can get it from them. And we're happy because why are we happy? Oh, yes, money. We get money. <laughs> it's not that much, but it's not that little. And the point is we're, we're, we're saving it up to get something special. And that's coming because also, by the way, so thank you for going to Amazon on our website, LarryMillerPodcast.com. It sounds like that again. Shaving a haircut, two bits, who's on the mountain, Tom Mix. Can you imagine how old that thing is, by the way? Can you imagine whatever you think, however little little poems get written, little sayings get made, uh, that a shave and a haircut is two bits. That's 25 cents. If there's a place in America you can still get a shave and a haircut for 25 cents, I'm begging you, don't do it, because that is way too little to spend on a shave and a haircut. You couldn't even have one. I wouldn't even suggest, look, I have no hair, and I wouldn't get a haircut for 25 cents. Never mind the shave, where the guy is actually putting a straight razor to your head. But in any case, and uh, who's on the mountain? Tom Mix, who's a great cowboy star, and was at Wyatt Earp's funeral. And uh, these, little, these little romantic things about movie always make me very happy. That was uh, said at the end of the movie Tombstone, which I think is terrific. has so much good in it. And uh, that's said by Robert Mitchum, uh, who describes the end there and how, uh, how Wyatt Earp... It's an amazing thing, some of the... Re just the real facts, the reality of life, that after the shootout at the OK Corral, after everything that happened with Wyatt Earp and all the guys he was with and how they went up against these other guys and, and how they won and they killed these guys, and after that, he and the young woman who became his wife then moved to Los Angeles and did went up and down the coast, did all sorts of things. But he then, so remember, this is, you subtract, say, 40 years from 1829, so you go to 1889, something like that. That's a long time. That's 40, so for 40 years, he lived here, right here in Southern California. And the amazing thing to me is this great restaurant where Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris and I had our our two drinks before then going back to my house and, what, to make dinner for the kids? Or just to say to my wife, hi, honey. No, we all had just two drinks. And then going off, that's right, we took Eileen to dinner. And, well, we had two more drinks. At any rate, though, uh, that was that was a, you know, a really a, a good time. And at Musso and Frank, it's a restaurant that's been around since 1919, something like that. It's the first restaurant that was not only really popular with all the stars and all the people in show business and all the agents, but everyone who came here went to... It's still right there, right on Hollywood Boulevard. It's still in wonderful shape. And boy, 
they make a heck of a drink. That I know it doesn't seem it seems amazing to me too, but want even watching the guy make a martini, it's so simple, and he had such artful moves with his hands. He's an older fella. It just it, it, but it looked it was wonderful fun to watch, and I'll tell you what, that was a heck of a drink. That was a martini. That was a martini. In any case, uh, though we uh, we went, so at, at Musso and Frank there, that's where apparently. Then Wyatt Earp and his friends hung out at the bar for 10 years after the place was open before, well, Wyatt Earp passed on, and that which was in 1929. In any case, though, the things that tie these all together always always make me happy here. And uh, But that's not the movie we'll be talking about this week, by the way, on Magic Movie Moment. Of course, that's later. Right now, though, it's time for... That's right... The joke of the week. That's right. The joke of the week. The joke of the week. Yes, that's right. The joke of the week. I love getting these jokes from different places. Please write us in jokes you hear and that you think of. And remember, of course, a good place to do that is LarryMillerPodcast.com, right? People can write into that, right? Okay. I just check with the Colonel, Colonel Jeff, and Dr. Chris again when I say things like this because, well, two reasons. First of all, because I don't know, and I, I, I don't know. I have no idea what the, uh, what the web page does, and I keep looking through the window. Is it the web page? Is that what it is? In any case, uh, please write in uh, jokes you think you like, and uh, these two came from my manager, Lee, and I was talking to him today before coming over here. I said, do you have any jokes? And he said, well, there's one. And uh, he went to this place on the website, and he told me he told me a few jokes, two, three, four jokes, and there were two of them I thought would be good, and I thought they'd go together really well here today. So today is going to be two jokes of the week, okay? And here comes the first one. It's nighttime. It's about ten o'clock at night, and a married couple is driving home from a house party, a cocktail party they went to at some of their friends' houses, and uh, they get pulled over. A policeman pulls them over, and he walks over, and the lights are flashing. He walks over and says to the husband, uh, Boy, I'll tell you, you know, uh, you, uh, you're going uh, kind of fast there, and uh, do, you, uh, do you, hey, wait a minute, he just notices, you know, your seatbelt is not on. And the husband says, uh, you know, I just unbuckled it because I saw you coming up. So, you know, that's why it's not on. And his wife immediately says, well, that's a lie. You never put your seatbelt on. You know that. You didn't just unbuckle it now. You never have it on. And there's a moment of kind of awkwardness there. there and, and, the, and the policeman says, uh, well, <clears throat> and he turns back to the uh, husband and says, well, could I see your driver's license, please? And the husband immediately says, oh, shucks, I left it home. You know, I, I don't have it with me because it's, it's at home. And his wife immediately says, tell the truth. You had that license suspended three months ago. You don't have a license at home. You don't have a license, period. And there's another awkward moment of silence there. And then the policeman turns to the wife and says, excuse me, ma'am, I'm just curious, though. Do you always treat him like this? And she says, only when he drinks too much. <laughs> I got a kick out of that because, well, you'll know why when I tell you the second one here. Because that's just a classic 
joke structure within within the world of whatever the word marriage means. It's just great. Whatever she, whatever the policeman says, she just jumps on it. She just jumps on his head on the husband. Bam, bam, bam. So anyway, here's a second joke. An older married couple is going shopping, and they do things together because they're an older married couple, and they do things together even though they don't get along that well. But they do things together because they're healthy, they're well, they're still together. And even though they don't get along, they still do things together. They walk into the big, big supermarket, a big chain. On the East Coast, it could have been Publix or something. Here on the West Coast, it could have been Ralph's. could have been anything. But it's a big chain, a popular chain. And they go in there. And as they're about to walk in, they get the cart. And the husband says to the wife, look, do me a favor. Let's just get home after this. Just don't do something that embarrasses us, please. And she says, why would you have to say something like that? Does it always have to be an argument with you? And he said, do me a favor, please. Just let's play it straight here. Because he knows she's a little light-fingered sometimes. And and he says, just don't do anything to embarrass us. You know, they go, they get a huge cart full of expensive food. They pay for it all. And just as they're walking out the door pushing the cart, a security guard comes up to them and says, folks, sorry to bother. He turns to the wife and says, would you please let me see what you have under your coat? And there's a stiff moment of silence there. She opens a coat. Sure enough, she's got a can of peaches. And they're all embarrassed. She's stolen a can of peaches. She was trying to, in addition to the zillions of dollars they just spent on food in the store, she stole a can of peaches. And he says, look, I'm sorry to do this, but I'll have to take you downtown. You know, this, this is stealing. They go to court. They wind up going to court. And the judge, she gets convicted. And because there's nothing to there's nothing to argue against. She had the can of peaches. And the judge says to her, you know, I'm sorry to say, I don't know what it is nowadays, but this has been happening more and more. I just had three other cases like this this morning, and frankly, it's it's getting the best of me. I'm 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 mad at this. You know what? I'm gonna make an example, and I'm going to make an example out of you. And he turns to the bailiff, he says, Bailiff, how many peaches were there in that can? The bailiff said, Judge. The can had four peaches, and the judge turns to the woman and says, I'm going to give you four days in jail for those four peaches. And he's about to lift the gavel up and say, case dismissed. And the husband stands up and waves his arms and says, wait, Your Honor, wait, but she also stole a can of peas. (laughs) Now, I think those are funny. Those are two good laughs anyway. And it lives in that married world, as I said, and the reason I love the married world is it works on both sides. And the first joke, wow, she's jumping all over him. Whoa, she's just ratting him out all over the place. And in the first joke, well, you make the policeman nice. He's not a bad guy. And the husband is just sitting there and he's just saying this. Suddenly she's, whoa, she's jumping all over him. And she raises the stakes at the end by saying, you know, uh, excuse me, ma'am, do you always treat him like this? Well, only when he drinks too much or only when he's had too much to drink. That's that. That's That's the line. And I like that structure. I like that form. Holy mackerel. She just she just said something now that if it's true, and the others were true, and it's certainly probably true that he had too much to drink, you know, he could he could get in trouble. He could lose everything. He could go to jail, in fact. And the reason I love the second joke is because it's the same sort of thing from the other side. Whatever she does, he's going <laughs> to... I mean, at the end, he says, no, wait, Your Honor, you know, she... She also stole a can of peas because he saw, obviously, she got four, day, four, four peaches, four days. Why, a can of peas must have hundreds of peas in it. So 
I got a kick out of those, and I hope you did too. So remember, please send us in anything you like that's a joke of the week. And uh, if it fits well here, it seems I always learn something from a good joke. And I hope the same goes for you. And that leads us in right now to the Poetry Corner. Yes, it's the Poetry Corner. I love doing this as well. It's something I always thought I would do or wanted to do. Even when I, when I was a kid, I thought, boy, if I ever got a show somewhere, I'd, I'd like to read a poem on it. I'd like to just remind myself and remind everyone listening that poetry is just a great way to think and a great way to speak and a great way to hear a story. And sometimes we like reading funny ones and sometimes we like reading moving ones. And this is one that uh, just we just came across from Ogden Nash again. And I and I love Ogden Nash. He uh, he was an American poet, a great poet. Roughly what nine nine oh two nineteen oh two to nineteen sixty five something like that. But he was a great poet and had what a command of of English and uh, just a terrific guy. And he wrote one here called "The Common Cold," and that was that's a great phrase anyway because I never quite got why. Well, it's still a common cold. You know the, all the old sayings that, why, if we can land a man on the moon, how come we can't just cure the common cold? And that the word common is in there. But it's, it's a good phrase. So this is called The Common Cold by Ogden Nash. Go hang yourself, you old M.D. You shall not sneer at me. Pick up your hat and stethoscope. Go wash your mouth with laundry soap. I contemplate a joy exquisite. I'm not paying you for your visit. I did not call you to be told. My malady is a common cold. By pounding brow and swollen lip, by fever's hot and scaly grip, by those two red redundant eyes that weep like woeful April skies, by racking sniffle, snort and sniff, by handkerchief after handkerchief, this cold you wave away is naught as the damnedest cold man ever caught. Give ear, you scientific fossil. Here is the genuine cold colossal, the cold of which researchers dream. The perfect cold, the cold supreme. This honored system humbly holds the super cold to end all colds, the cold crusading for democracy, the furor of the streptococcusry. Streptococcusry. <laughs> that was worth stopping to saying it again correctly. Here's here's the next bunch. Bacilli swarm within my portals, such as were ne'er conceived by mortals, but bred by scientists wise and hoary in some Olympic, Olympic laboratory. Bacteria as large as mice with feet of fire and heads of ice who never interrupt for slumber their stamping elephantine rumba. A common cold, gadzooks, forsooth. Ah, yes, and Lincoln was jostled by Booth. Don Juan was a budding gallant, and Shakespeare's day shows signs of talent. The Arctic winter is fairly coolish, and your diagnosis is fairly foolish. Oh, what a derision history holds for the man who belittled the cold of colds. And that's a nice one called Common Cold by Ogden Nash. 
And one of the pleasures of that poem for me, and I think as well for Colonel Jeff, was that he's a real master of language, the way it works, not just in, in, in rhyming them, but that's a big thing. We don't really rhyme with art anymore, not the way these fellas did. And, uh, boy, rhyming democracy with streptococracy, that's pretty good. Good enough so I couldn't even say it the first time. In any case, that was our poetry corner. And once again, please write in something there if there's a poem you like, that uh, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're moving. And in Ogden Nash's case, it's always a little bit of both. And that, of course, leads us to, that's right, the magic movie moment. That's right, the magic movie moment. Now, what this is, it's something I love talking about each week, and please write one of these in if you think of something, if you see something, if it means something to you, because what these movies were like for me, it's a movie you love. It could be made from 1930, 1940, 50, 60, 70, 89. It doesn't matter when it was made, but that if there's a movie you love that you've seen two, five, ten times, maybe more, and each time you see it, there's one part of it one moment or one scene or one character in it that really makes you smile. It doesn't necessarily have something to do with the story as it's told. It might, but it doesn't necessarily have to do with that. It's a color of the movie that you've seen a handful of times in the movie or happens just once, and each time you see the movie, you look forward to it, and you say to yourself, all right, here we go, I know it's coming up, and you just enjoy it. Each time it happens. And the example I've always given, the uh, well, this is the kind of the structure for it. The right metaphor is that if you, if you know the old Dick Van Dyke show, the one from 1961 to 66, it's one of the moments in that show. It's a wonderful show, and it's going to be great forever. But it's one of those moments where every time Richard Deacon, who played Mel Cooley, the producer, would come into the writer's office there. I've said this before, but it's true every time as an example. As soon as he would come in... And uh, it was just always great. Maury Amsterdam, who played Buddy Sorrell, one of the writers, Maury would come up, just stand right next to him. And and Rob and Sally would stand on, on the other sides. And you just knew what was going to happen. You said, all right, here we go. This will be great. This will be five minutes of big laughs. And Buddy would stand there. Mel was much taller than he was. And Buddy would just fire off five, ten bald jokes at Mel. Whatever he said to Rob, uh, Rob, we're going to have to look at the scene today of this and that. Alan told me to tell you. Whatever he says, Buddy then turns into just a, a, a wonderful bald joke. They're all bald jokes, and it they were hysterical. So that's kind of what I'm getting at now. If there's something in a movie, come to think of it, it could be a TV show like that too. What am I saying? It doesn't have to be movies. But we think of movies so often in a romantic way, even the comical ones, and so if there's something in a movie that you really like, something that means something to you, just like that, yeah, it could be a TV show too. Send us something, all right? And uh, and, and that way you'll get, a, you'll get credit. You'll get your name as one of the orchestra leaders maybe. And <laughs> But it, it will mean a lot to us here and so much more if I've seen the movie as well. And now it's a movie I've seen probably ten times. And uh, I saw once when it came out and probably nine other times on TV. And it's called Rain Man. You've probably seen it as well. It's, of course, with Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. And it's, it's a wonderful movie. 
It's very, very good on so many counts. It makes you smile. It makes you laugh. It make it touches you really as these two brothers find the new way to love each other. It's a very, very good movie in all sorts of ways. And uh, in fact, Barry Levinson was great in it, the great director, and he came in as uh, as uh, one of the doctors at the at near the end there. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I saw it again just a couple of days ago. And it's one of those where you see it, even if it's already 20 minutes in, you've seen it enough that you can say, well, I'll just watch a little of it. And then, of course, you watch it to the end anyway. And I realized something about Rain Man that brought it into the world of magic movie moments. There's a lot of great stuff in Rain Man. They have big set pieces, obviously. Oh, they go and then they're in Las Vegas. It's very cleverly done, I thought. How do you get to a big scene with Las Vegas and, and lights like that? But I realized whatever happens in Rain Man, one of the things that I think makes it really sing to you, one of the things I think that really makes it as strong as it is, one of the things that touches you as it does, is that no matter what happens in the movie, no matter what happens between the two brothers, no matter what they go through, ups and downs, you know that about every 10 minutes you'll get to say again, boy, that Italian actress is gorgeous. That Italian actress is gorgeous, the one who plays Tom Cruise's girlfriend, and she's been in so many movies. I don't even know her name, by the way, and uh, that just got Colonel Jeff moving. I know he can find that out. I think it's something with a G, G or something. She's a wonderful actress, and she's really good in everything, and she's really, really pretty in such a distinctive, personal way. And she has sort of that lower husky voice with the Italian, the Italian accent, because, of course, she's Italian, but she's really lovely. And every time she appears, you get to say to yourself, boy, she's great. So whatever else happens in the movie, you could, ah, there we are. Oh, Valeria Golino. I knew there was a G somewhere there. It's funny, though, but that each, even that picture there of her, it's, wow, he just brought up there like... Five pictures of her on the, uh, oh, and there are four more. Okay, there's nine. There's nine pictures of her. But they're all, by the way, as you know, when you see pictures of someone, it reminds you of the person. But in a great movie or a great TV show, and, and when she comes in in the movie, since it's not a picture, pictures sometimes don't do for you what the person live does. When I say live, I mean even though it's a movie or a TV show, that's live because she's moving, she's talking, she's moving her hands. She's sister says, I don't know why you have to do this to him. Why? He's always saying this or that. Whatever it is within the acting and within the scripting and with everything she is, every 10 minutes, every time she appears, I found myself saying, she really is gorgeous. And there was a smile to that the first few times because this time watching that movie, I realized, aha, so there's that happening too. And then I realized, no, it's not bad. That's good. That's a good part of life. When you really like these two brothers in it, when you really like the journey they're making, especially Tom Cruise, of course, where he has to go from one spot to another along this line of life that they have, and he finally discovers, as both brothers do, that they really care about each other, that they can be together, even though they probably can't for other reasons because of the condition that that Dustin Hoffman has. And... As they learn about this, you're also really glad to learn, and I suppose this falls under the category of happy ending, so to speak. You're really glad to learn that Tom and his girlfriend, Valeria, what you know their names in the movie are, 
are going to be together. She really cares about him, and he's becoming a better guy, and he really cares about her. And that, as soon as she appears again, well, I'm in Las Vegas with you now. It's just fantastic. Every time they say on a phone, if I were writing that movie, I would say to, how do we get her back in? Well, why doesn't he call, call her back home and tell her that they're losing money on this? And she could say, well, you know, Las Vegas, I'll come. I'll come out to Las Vegas and I'll be with you because after all, it's right here. And I would keep writing things like that. I'm glad they did. And that, that reappearance of her hitting that note, striking that not only with the person she is, and the actress she is, and the way she acts, and how good she is. But that became a magic movie moment for me. It's not one moment, but it's this character done by this actress who really made it something to look forward to. And by the last time you see her, I wasn't saying anymore, boy, she's great. I I wish I could kiss her right now. Well, I was saying that, but never mind that now, (laughs) okay? But really, it's so much more than that you're saying... I'm glad these two characters can make it together and are going on together in another movie that I won't be seeing. So in any case, that works this week for a magic movie moment. And uh, I'll tell you that, as, as we were just saying, as, as, as the Colonel and the Doctor and I were just saying before, you know, you can't write that, but when it happens, it's gold because... You can't write in for an actress to be seen that way. You can't write in. You could, but I think you know what I mean. It just has to happen that if something occurs and the director and the producers and the people and the studio executives look at shots and coming in and the dailies coming in and as they're starting to edit it, as the editor goes to work, when you see that happening, well... You really ought to know you've you've just tapped into a vein of big gold in a big mountain. So I hope you uh, send us things, and it'll never be tiring for me to think of and tell you about magic movie moments. And uh, actually, when it, it happened to me that this this reminded me of in the in the in the dining hall we had at school, we we had in, in college days. I worked in the dining hall, which was a great job to have because it's it's a, it's was a wonderful job. You work. It's not easy, but that gives you money. It gives you college money that you could never find in the street. And if you've been to college, I think you know what I mean. If, you, if you're searching through a pair of jeans or you find in a pocket of a shirt that you had thrown in a corner in the room and you realize in the pocket, I remember this happened to me. There was $14.00. Now, as a kid, I know prices have gone up, but as a kid, 14, <laughs> with $14, you can get a house for that. But, you know, that when you find that kind of money, you really do think you, find, you found a bar of gold. And you know what, though? That, that dining hall ha- had the, these things in it. It reminded me of, of two things that used to happen there every single day. One was, most of the time, for about a year, I worked in the garbage area there, uh, when people would, uh, guys would come back with their trays and plates, and we'd pull them in, this guy Jeff and I, and uh, we'd pull them in, and we always got along fine. We didn't uh, talk much, and uh, but he was, he was a great guy. And uh, he, we used to have a thing where you, you would clear the plates into the garbage disposal, which is a big, sort of a, 
Well, it, it's a unit that that's where all the food slides in, and then there's a hole in the middle, and then it goes down there, and you could turn it on and, well, grind the food into the garbage disposal. And then he said to me one day, because I used to do that, the way the rules tell you, that, you know, oh, you clear the plates off, and then whatever just went down there, you grind away. And he said to me, you know what? Don't grind it all when it happens. Let's save the food and grind it afterwards. Now... I didn't think there was anything wrong with this. I thought, it's fine fine with me. It sounds like a good idea to me. It's one of those 19, 20-year-old ideas where if someone says it, you think, well, it sounds smart to me. And every day, we wouldn't turn on the grinder, the garbage disposal. We would keep just shoveling the food in. And it grew, of course, then up to the hole that was down there in the chute and then up around the the hole. And then it would get into the... Well, into the areas where it was supposed to normally slide down, but so much food would grow because we weren't grinding it. So much food would grow, it would get to the surface of the table, and then it would grow past that. And this is all chrome, so you didn't care about anything getting dirty. And then it would grow into a mound, sometimes a foot high. This is a lot of food that has to be ground. And the first time we did it, he and I are standing back there like the two idiots we are. And he said, okay, ready? Here we go. This is the height of our day. We're supposed to be in college, by the way. So he'd say, here we go. And we're standing there in our white kitchen jackets. And he would flick the switch. And we'd stand there with our arms folded, just look at it. And nothing would happen. And then after about five seconds, you'd hear a very low, deep rumbling and realize that Oh, it was starting to eat away at the food on the bottom there. And and it would get louder. And by the way, the food on the top hadn't moved. doesn't budge. Hadn't moved an inch. But then as the rumbling got louder, then you'd see the force of... Maybe it was a vacuum. I don't know. But it would then lift the food up in a kind of a ker-chirk thing. And the food would go up about five inches, all of it, not goes flying away, but the mountain would go up and then just suddenly go down very fast. And it got ground very fast. But, I mean, it went ka-chunk, boom It went down that chute. And then he and I watched it as it just disappeared. And I said to him, I have to be honest, I think that was a terrific idea. And we turned it off then and went about our days to go to class and whatever the things are that we did. And we began to do this every single day, every single day, because he and I liked it. And then, because we would tell friends, because what else do you have to talk about? And we would tell other friends in school, and these guys would come, and they couldn't come inside if they didn't work in the dining hall. But then other guys in the dining hall, in white jackets, and every so often one or two guys who weren't working there would come in to us to stand with us to watch this thing get ground up. And from the two of us, then it became five guys, then it became eight guys, and then it got to a point where there were 14 guys there, more or less every day, standing there, and the pile of food got bigger because then guys who worked, they would bring their own plates by, not theirs that they had eaten with. They would bring hunks of food that they hadn't ground so they could put onto our grinder, and so now the mound of food is, it was two feet high, more, like three feet high. It was a big pile of food over this grinding drain. And we would do it again. We'd say, okay, here we go. Stand back, guys. Here we go. And Jeff would flick the switch, and we'd stand back too. 
And every single time, there was always one guy who, after five seconds, would lean over and say to me, I don't see anything happening. And that gave me the chance, of course, to, to be the great wizard and turn and say, wait, my son, just wait and watch. Wait and watch. And then we'd turn back and look, and sure enough, a few seconds later, the same thing larger would happen. They would rumble again. And this thing, I've got to tell you, I don't know what the laws of physics are that cause it to happen that way, but the same thing was the food would go kachunka blunk. It was like something from Star Wars, and then shoom, it would shoot down all ground, by the way. It was grinding it up. Which, by the way, another good answer to the question, should I put my arm in there? Probably not. And it would go down, and then Jeff would turn it off, and the reaction was always the same. All the new guys there would say, that was terrific. And, of course, because they enjoyed it, then another 14 guys would want to come in. And that was the dining hall there, and there was a woman there who worked there. The regular folks who worked there were all some locals from the area, and they were good folks. I liked I liked a lot of them there, and they were... It was one of those dining halls, by the way, when I saw the food come in every day in trucks. And it was a local area. It was a good farming area, onions, mushrooms. It was, it was a good area for tomatoes, lettuce, everything. And I saw it come in and think, I used to think, boy, that looks like terrific fresh stuff coming right in. And I knew the folks who were cooking, cooking it and cutting it and doing all these things to it. And I used to say, and I used to do that too. I used to help out. And many times I would do the the cooking of this and that. And I used to say to myself, this cooking is good. It's not bad cooking. It's taking these good materials and cooking them really well. And then putting them on plates and then putting the plates on the shelves. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow, some way, some reason, as soon as you put it on the plate and someone takes the plate off, he would eat the food and then say, this isn't very good. And I knew that feeling. So I never knew why. But there was one of the folks there who worked in the dining hall, was from the local area, there was a woman named May. And she liked this one group of guys who worked there, that uh, our guys, student guys. And she taught me a couple of lessons that I've never forgotten. One is that uh, she told me to make coffee one day in one of the big institutional coffee makers. And uh, I didn't know how to do it. I would always just say, sure, absolutely, anything in life. I don't know if that's smart, but anytime someone told me to do something, if I didn't know how to do it, I'd say, sure, absolutely, and I'd go do it. And I didn't know how to make this coffee, but I figured out, all right, you put a filter in, okay, you put some coffee in, and I put two bags of coffee in. And it was supposed to have just one bag, but I would put two in. And uh, that makes it well very strong and unpleasant. And would go in there, and she came up and said, uh, is that you? Did you make that? And I said, yeah. And uh, she said, so you put two bags in? I said, yeah. And she said, it's only supposed to take one. It's only supposed to take one bag. And I said, well, I put two. And she, as she walked away, she kind of shook her head and mumbled, well, I guess that'll be keeping them up today. And that was fine. But then May came in once and said to me, my job, my assignment was to fill the little bowls with yogurt. We have a giant tub of yogurt that, uh, well, you know, it looks like anything. It looks like it'd be on a construction site for gypsum. It could, just, could, could be something that was just a huge, huge big tin of, of yogurt. And I just found, oddly enough, I took a coffee cup as a scoop. 
So I didn't know what else to take. I didn't know what drawers to open. And I, to be honest, I didn't really care a lot. I didn't care enough to ask. And this was another good lesson because I started putting them in the bowls and it wasn't as neat as it might have been, but I was pretty good at this stuff. And I got them up there and I would get them up fast. And she came and she was walking by and she said, you don't do it that way. You don't do it with a coffee cup. And she said, she opened one of the drawers there, one of the silver drawers that was down me. She said, here, you use this. And uh, she handled me, well, it was it was exactly right for it. It was a spoon with a long handle on it, and the spoon was deeper than it should. And frankly, it was perfect to put that in. And I just said, well, I'm using this, May. And then I did something. I didn't do much. I don't recall I've ever done this in life. I'm sure we've all done it in life. But I lost my temper. She said, well, you're not supposed to. Stop doing that. Put that down and use this. And I said something on the other. It wasn't that bad. I just said something. May, what's the difference? Let me ask you something. What's the difference? Now, they get the yogurt. I'm putting it out there. Well, what does it matter? It's the last stage of this lunch. And so what does it really matter? So we clean another coffee cup. But I said it hard enough to her that she got, well, either offended or a little miffed. or Oh, this guy's not just talking to me as I'm talking to him. And you know what? At the time I did it, I thought, well, it didn't feel right, but I thought, well, I did the right thing. It's time to stand up for yourself and the things you do and the choices you make. And you know what, though? As she she walked away and kind of flapped her hands as if to say, you know what, it's enough for this idiot. And I realized, I thought to myself, gee, I don't think that was such a nice thing to do. And I realized it's another good lesson in life. And you know what that is? That every so often, and if you learn this, it's a real blessing. And I thought it was a blessing then, too, for me, because every so often it's great. It's not just good. It's great to be able to learn, no matter how old you are, whether you're a kid or an old man, it's great to be able to learn the right times to turn to someone and say, you know what, that sounds like the right way to do it, and I didn't know that before, and thanks for noticing. And it's that simple, but you really did learn a lesson there, and it was the right thing to do, and it was actually generous of her that she walks over and said, what are you doing here? And you know what, though? That's a good lesson to learn. I hope I've never forgotten it. But at that time, every so often, it still pops back into my head, as it did today, that you know what? I was probably not as polite as I should have been to good old May. She certainly was was nice enough to us, and uh, she certainly didn't like the coffee I made. But you know what? She was uh, she was great to hang around with. And I do think uh, one of these days, on the other side, that we'll both have passed away and that uh, I'll see her and I'll say, Oh, hi, May. Hey, listen, I, uh, I always wanted to apologize for being a little curt with you, for, being, uh, for not being that nice when you told me to use the big ladle for the yogurt in the bowls. And I'll bet you a dollar, I just know she'd turn and say with a smile, oh, you weren't the worst of them, don't worry. You never came in drunk, did you? And that was, well, it tells you something about the school I went to. But you know what? No, I never did. And I bet she'd be nice enough to say it with a smile that way. And I'd, and I'd say, well, still, it's good to see you. And thanks for a good lesson that day. I hope that a tiny part of what you all and I do here is sometimes a little lesson too. Not a big one, but that's 
It's nice to hear something like this every so often and say, you know what? I didn't know that. Thanks, pal. So uh, thank you to you for listening. It means the world that you're there because it lets, lets us be here, and we like it very, very much. So as always, remember, if you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. That is still the most important lesson I've ever learned. But May, the one you taught me, was pretty good, too. Thanks, folks. We'll see you here next time. LarryMillerPodcast.com.